Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought, and welcome back. This is the first episode of our second season. For today's podcast, we'll be hearing from Professor Roshan Abraham, Assistant Professor of Classics and Religious Studies here at Washington University in St. Louis. As part of our continuing series on people, places, and ideas to explore, I had the chance to talk with Professor Abraham about the first century philosopher Apollonius of Tiana, at least according to the lengthy biography, The Life of Apollonius, which we'll hear more about in a bit. Apollonius was a fascinating character. He performed miracles, he traveled the world. More than once he defied the Roman Empire and lived to tell the tale. But as Professor Abraham will explain, what happened during Apollonius's life is only part of what makes him so interesting. So Apollonius of Tiana was a first century CE Neo-Pythagorean sage, Okay, before going any further, let's break that first part down a bit. First century CE, so we're talking some 2,000 years ago. This is around the same time that Jesus lived, and the Roman Empire was still in its heyday. As for Neo-Pythagorean? In, in some version of Neo-Pythagoreanism, there's a, like, a spark of divinity in all humans. And the only way you could access that spark of divinity is to kind of deny all of the humanity. The idea is that, you know, if you divest yourself of the material world and material pleasures, whether it be alcohol, food, sex, you're able to access your spiritual nature. And that's very much what Apollonius was. Another part of this lifestyle meant being vegetarian and not wearing leather or any other animal products. Apollonius was also silent for five years as a sign of discipline. So what else do scholars know about who Apollonius was or how he lived? Turns out, not a lot. So the, the historical Apollonius, I mean, we know so, so little about. In some ways, it's not, it's not too different than trying to figure out about the historical Jesus, because, you know, our document is later than the historical individual. But with, at least with the historical Jesus, you have, num- you know, you have numerous documents. Uh, with Apollonius, you really just have one complete document, m- namely the life of Apollonius by Philostratus. One more time, that's the life of Apollonius by the Greek writer Flavius Philostratus. Philostratus lived after Apollonius, around the 3rd century CE. He worked in the court of the empress Julia Dumna, and it was the empress who asked Philostratus to write a definitive account of Apollonius's life. What he came up with ended up being eight volumes long, and pretty much everything scholars know about Apollonius comes from that text. If we were to take that document as, you know, some kind of rough sketch of what his life was, uh, the historical figure was probably some kind of itinerant preacher in the from the first century CE. He probably was limited to kind of the Asia Minor region. He has a prodigious youth. You know, his, his birth is uh, portented by uh, uh, thunder and lightning and, and miraculous dreams. He's uh, already quite an adept uh, philosopher at a young age. He goes to study with uh, other philosophers, and he already knows more than they do. And at one point, after he takes up Pythagoreanism, he decides, I want to go to India to study with the Brahmins. And that was originally what interested me in Apollonius, was this idea of traveling to India to gain wisdom. And that was actually a theme in a lot of biographies of philosophers, that they go somewhere east, 
to either study with Egyptians or Babylonian magi. But Apollonius is the one who goes the furthest east. So it's kind of a a one-upsmanship. So he goes to this land, this part of India, where Philostratus specifically says, no Greek has ever been here before. And there's even a, a little monument that Alexander the Great sets up that says, I stopped here. You know, and uh, Apollonius goes past that monument and he finds this land where everyone speaks pure Attic Greek. They're all Pythagorean philosophers. They all live the same kind of ascetic lifestyle he does. And these people are labeled Brahmins. So a logical question at this point is, can we believe Philostratus? How much of what he wrote is actually historical fact? Did Apollonius actually go to India? And these people described as Brahmins, who were they really? But at least to Professor Abraham, these actually aren't the important questions. Instead, he asks, What's Philostratus doing here with taking this land that no one's ever been to and populating it with people who are like purely, purely Greek? And I think it it has to do with what happens afterwards. When he comes back to Greece, when he returns, he starts this really big campaign of cultural and uh, religious reform. He's criticizing Greeks for taking Roman names. He's criticizing the way in which, you know, traditional Greek Greek religious activity has fallen by the wayside. I mean, it's very much to me a criticism of the Roman Empire invading Greece or the Greek acceptance of the Roman Empire. At the end of his life, uh, no one knows where his but no one has ever seen his body. No one knows whether he died. Uh, at one point, he just ascends up to heaven. So I mean, so it has it, it's this story of an itinerant cultural and spiritual reformer whose travels really map the whole range of the Roman Empire. You know, to as far west as Spain, as far east as India, as far south as Ethiopia. And through his travels, you know, there's a way in which it seems that what he's what Philostratus is doing is using Apollonius as a way to argue for Greek culture and for the for the return to kind of a a kind of a Greek culture that existed before the Roman Empire. This picture that Philostratus sets up, that of Apollonius as a sort of wise defender of Greek culture and values. This wasn't always how the philosopher was portrayed. And according to Abraham, the ways in which Apollonius's reputation shifted over the centuries is even more interesting than trying to learn about how Apollonius himself lived. My own work is really interested in tracing how this one person gets so many different stories told about him, and he's used in so many different ways. We know sometime after he died, he got a really negative reputation of being some kind of wonder worker, a charlatan, or a magician. So that in the first century, the late first century CE, he's everything that a philosopher shouldn't be. He's everything that a Greek or a a good Greek or a Roman citizen shouldn't be. But then by the early third century, mid third century, he becomes exactly what a good Greek or Roman should be against this growing thread of Christianity. We've already mentioned that Apollonius and Jesus lived at about the same time. And Apollonius was doing many of the same types of things as Jesus. Professor Abraham told me how, according to Philostratus, Apollonius raised people from the dead, he exercised demons, He even told little stories that sound a lot like the parables told by Jesus in the Gospels. So in the years and centuries that Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, 
both the pagans and the early church leaders had a lot to say about Apollonius. He becomes the fit person that Neoplatonic philosophers and ev- all the other Greeks and Romans writing against Christianity, writing these uh, polemics against Christianity, he's the one they bring up when they're arguing about the divinity of Jesus. And the argument pretty much goes along the lines of, you know, Jesus dies a pretty horrible death. It's not glorified in any way. Not only does that kind of go against the expecta- the Jewish expectations of what a messianic figure should go like, it also go- goes against Greek and Roman expectations of what a divine person person's life would be like. Uh, so the argument made by Greek and Roman philosophers was that Apollonius is someone who is divine, and he had a glorious kind of death. I mean, he came up against the Roman Empire, and he won. Okay, this is part of Apollonius's life story we haven't heard yet. How exactly does someone come up against the Roman Empire and win? Well, Apollonius confronts the Roman Empire twice. First, he goes to Rome uh, when under Nero's regime, And this was a time when philosophers were being kicked out of Rome, uh, when anyone who practiced something like divination, you know, the art of telling the future, uh, were under a lot of suspicion. And he, being a philosopher, you know, felt that it was his duty to confront this. And he was arrested when he gets to Rome. But when he is brought to trial against the prefect, he doesn't actually see Nero. uh, He's acquitted. And then later on, he is brought to trial in front of Domitian for the practice of magic, for being a magician. And again, he's able to not only defend himself, but he just disappears from the courtroom, just magically kind of vanishes. It wasn't just that that the Roman Empire couldn't control him, but that he was even completely beyond the Roman Empire. So in the Neoplatonic philosopher's perspective... Through these miracles, Apollonius had shown himself to be more powerful than Jesus. After all, if Jesus was truly divine, why didn't he defeat Pontius Pilate? Why didn't he take himself down from the cross? This was all really difficult to understand. But the Greeks and Romans weren't the only ones talking about Apollonius. The early Christians had their own point of view. On the Christian side... Uh, one form of argumentation was that, well, he these weren't legitimate miracles that Apollonius does. He was a charlatan. Or, I mean, when they say someone is a magician, I mean, that's essentially saying that they were a fraud, a charlatan. They were dabbling in things that aren't appropriate. Uh, Augustine relates magic to working with demons. So there are evil demonic forces, and Apollonius was able to you know, do his miracles because he's because uh, he's working with demons. The other argument is, well, we know that Apollonius wasn't divine because he took all the credit for himself. Jesus never takes credit for his miracles. You know, he always points to something else. He points to God. He points to a person's faith. Whereas Apollonius, I mean, the fact that he's trying to aggrandize himself through his miracles, you know, according to the church fathers, you know, suggests that, you know, he was a fraud, you know, that he was in it for himself. Note that the church leaders didn't claim that Apollonius didn't perform these miracles, just that the miracles didn't make him godlike. So just how many miracle workers were running around in this time period that these miracles were so believable? So there were a lot of charismatic individuals during the first, second, third century, maybe even earlier, around in the Greco-Roman world, in Syria, Palestine. You know, we do have accounts of 
even emperors performing miracles, doing uh, miraculous cures. We have in Syria and Palestine various accounts of exorcisms. There are people battling demons throughout Syria and Palestine. The idea that was developed in the late 19th and early 20th century was that there is this individual known as the Theos Aner, which is Greek for the godlike man. And this is a, a Hellenistic type of individual who exhibits divinity through the performance of miracles. Now, as this theory was developed, you know, they created specific criteria by which someone is identified as a theos on air. It, it came clear that the only two people who fit all of the criteria was Apollonius and Jesus. At this point, it's pretty clear that Apollonius is a fascinating figure to study, both from a historical and from a religious perspective, which made me wonder, how did Professor Abraham first encounter Apollonius? It was interesting that, you know, I came to this text kind of interested in cultural history, interested in, you know, Greek knowledge of India and Greece under the Roman Empire. Uh, but after, you know, kind of sitting with this text for as many years as I have been now, I've become more and more interested in kind of the religious aspect. And even the first time I read it, you know, I, my first reaction was, this sounds like a gospel. Uh, and it's really this text that brought me to, you know, the study of religion as an academic discipline, even though my own kind of specific training is in classical studies. Uh, it's this text that brought me to the New Testament, even though it's usually the other way around. You know, usually people who are interested in the New Testament get interested in the life of Apollonius. For me, being interested in the life of Apollonius took me back to the New Testament and the Gospels and the historical Jesus, uh, and also the development of, of the early church, because so much of those polemics had this character involved in them. Professor Abraham is also working on a book about Apollonius of Tiana. So to wrap up, I asked him to give us just a little bit of a teaser. So the, yeah, the, the kind of provisional title of my book is The Many Lives of Apollonius of Tiana. And what I'm trying to do is examine how, you know, one individual life, one individual person can have so many different lives that why is this individual, why, what's, what is it about him that makes him so useful for people to think with? You know, why can, you know, one person refer to him as a charlatan, a fraud uh, within their culture, but, you know, a hundred years later, he becomes the embodiment of that culture uh, against, you know, this new kind of religion that's, that's kind of sweeping the empire. Uh, you know, why is Apollonius of Tiana, you know, good to think with? Many thanks to Roshan Abraham for contributing to Hold That Thought. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, his courses include seminars on magicians and witches in Greco-Roman literature, on early Christianity and classical culture, and on pilgrimage and sacred space. You can find a link to his faculty page on Hold That Thought's website. We are, as always, at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. STL.edu. And since this is the first episode of the season, here's a quick reminder that you can subscribe to Hold That Thought on iTunes, on Stitcher, and you can follow us on Twitter at Woostel underscore thanks. <laughs>